the rest of us can't afford to demonize every investor or entrepreneur who seeks to make a profit. That drive is what has always fueled our prosperity, and it is what will ultimately get these banks lending and our economy moving once more. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C., and today we have another special guest host, the newest addition to the Planet Money family, reporter Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you, David. I decided I'd throw Caitlin in the broom closet, too, after her stunt Monday, oh, but no. we're going <laughs> to we're gonna let her out here in just a little bit because she actually has some tape that we want to bring to you. Today is Wednesday, March 25th. On today's show, we are going to take a global anger tour and find out who people around the world blame for the economic crisis. We will take stops in China, Sweden, and as our globe guided us, we will also stop in Egypt. Uh, We'll also get a little more insight into the Treasury's plan to get toxic assets off bank balance sheets from our own Adam Davidson. But first, today's Planet Money indicator is 81 years. That is how many years former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker has been on this earth. It is not his birthday, but I mention this because today President Obama put him in charge of figuring out how to improve the tax code. That means uh, streamlining it, closing loopholes. Volcker is one of those well-regarded elder statesmen. I actually just saw him speak yesterday. And uh, he's been around almost as long as the tax code itself, which if you count the 16th Amendment as the start of it, was 96 years ago. Man, Paul Volcker, good luck to you. So we've been getting a lot of questions about the toxic asset plan that was unveiled this week. Questions like, uh, the big question really, is it a good plan? Is it going to save the economy? Is it going to hurt the taxpayer? Is it going to give a bunch of money to people who are already rich? Is it maybe going to do all those things? So uh, our colleague Adam Davidson has been thinking and reading a lot about this, and he joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Adam. Hey, David. Is this a good plan? Is it going to save the economy? Is it going to hurt the taxpayers? Is it going to give a bunch of money to people who are already rich? Is it maybe going to do all those things? Right. So so I've spent the last... uh, Two days reading. I have a huge pile of reports and articles and papers I've been scouring. And, and you know, it can be kind of overwhelming reading lots of analysts' opinions. But but I feel like there are three main views. Or I, I would actually say there are two main views and and one uh, view that one guy had that I thought was interesting. So I thought I'd mention <laughs> it. All right. All right so, should we do the first two main views first? Yeah, let's do the first two main views because those are the key ones. Um, the first one I'm going to call the Vinnie Catalano view. He's, you know, the head of Blue Marble Research. I just thought he laid it out in the most clear way. He's been on this program a, a lot and, and has helped us understand how markets work. And his view is basically that this is a good plan, that this is a very smart and excellent plan. And, okay. and, and that view is that these toxic assets we keep hearing about are worth more than people think they're worth. This is also the view of... of Tim Geithner and Citibank and Bank of America, the view that these assets are worth a lot more, but the people who might buy those assets, hedge funds and, you know, private investors don't have enough money. They they can't get the capital easily to buy these things. So he's saying that the market is basically stuck, right? The banks would be willing to part for this, part with these things at a price that people would be willing to buy it. But the people who, who would buy it don't have the financing, don't have the money. And so everything's just frozen. 
Exactly. And so the government is going to lend those people money at, at reasonable terms, but those those investors, the hedge funds and others, have enough, the phrase is, skin in the game. They're putting enough of their own money up that they really have the right incentives. They have the incentives to bid correctly. They don't want to overbid for these um, assets they will bid correctly, but they'll bid higher than the current price. And basically what this is going to do is get those investors to to have enough money that they could uh, buy these assets at a decent price, get them off the books of Bank of America and Citibank, and then um, the Bank of America and Citibank will be healthier because they won't be weighed down by these mysterious toxic assets. They'll be able to lend more money out to the rest of the economy. Um, the rest of us will buy, go back to buying... De- big screen TVs and investing in new factories and the economy will pick up and that will actually make those toxic assets worth more because it means more people have jobs, more people are paying their mortgages, so there's less foreclosures, home prices go up. And and in that scenario, no one actually gets too badly hurt. Like maybe the taxpayers, you know, buy it for a little too much or something or maybe a little too Not so really. Little, I mean in his money, view, right? the taxpayer ends up making money, the banks yeah. make money. The investor makes money all around. He says, very smart, very good. This is a plan that understands Wall Street. Okay. Banks actually have lost money from their initial investment, but they get the stuff off their books at a price they're willing to part with it for. Right, exactly. So, yes, I mean, banks don't go back to the the inflated levels of, of the bubble years, but they go, but they're better off than they are today. So there's another view. I call it the Paul Krugman view just because he's the most famous guy who, who has it, but lots and lots of other people have it. Um, his view is no, 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 no. This plan should be called the Tim Geithner gives a lot of taxpayer money to banks who don't deserve it plan. And, and by the way, I'm not actually quoting Paul Krugman there. I'm just paraphrasing. And you know, so, so Krugman's view is that this creates unhealthy incentives. It creates bad incentives that basically a private investor, a hedge fund, is given enough money um, at really generous terms by the U.S. government that they have an incentive to really play with the government's money. Because remember, the investor is only putting up 3%. So, I think j- just um, to be clear, we should, we should point out that that's, that's true for the buying up packages of loans, and it's slightly different. We don't know the exact details for buying up uh, – Mortgage-backed securities. Right. But it, it's some high, high leverage. And so basically the, the, invest, the Krugman view is that the investors sort of have an incentive to just take a flyer. Hey, what the heck? If I buy 10 of these, maybe five are not worth anything and five will be worth a lot. I'll make a lot of money on the five that are worth a lot. I'll lose money on the five that aren't worth anything. But the taxpayer is going to take most of the hit for the losses. I get to pick up a lot of the gains. In the end... I'm going to come out ahead, and it creates a really bad incentive. It it creates an incentive for people to pay far more than these things are worth. All right, so Catalano and Krugman are are really far apart on this. Yeah, they totally disagree. Now, now, Vinny Catalano, you know, he's a nice guy. He he, as it happens, does not have a Nobel Prize. Um, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a PhD. Um, but he says explicitly, he says, "Hey, I respect Krugman a lot." think he's a brilliant guy. He's way out of his depths here. He doesn't understand how Wall Street actually works. He's an academic economist. And Catalano says that the way the numbers work out, maybe in an abstract economic model, there's the incentive to overbid. But the way people actually trade money, there's not enough of an incentive. There's not a big enough benefit that people would overbid. So he's confident 
um, that they will not overbid. And, and you know, for, for us, I do find that there are things that you definitely are going to trust the academic Nobel Prize winning economist on. And then there's stuff that you, you kind of do want a guy from Queens who, who's worked on Wall Street for decades. Um, I'm not saying I'm endorsing the Vinnie Catalano view, um, but, but I am sensitive to that take on it. You know, it's also possible, right, that the truth is somewhere in between, that because the government is helping out so generously the uh, you know, the private investors who are buying this stuff, that it will result in a slightly higher price when they buy the toxic assets, you know, a slight uh, nudging things in favor of the banks getting a higher price. But, you know, maybe it won't be that much. I mean, it could be somewhere in the middle, right? Exactly. And, and, and I should note that I, I have not you know, there, there's so many predictions of absolute disaster that we hear that if the U.S. government does this or does that, we're going to have a decade of recession like Japan, this lost decade, or we're going to actually have a full-on depression. I am not seeing that about this plan. The people who love this plan do not say that magically within a month everything's going to be great. They say this is a step in the right direction, but not sufficient to fully solve everything. The people who hate this plan do not say, oh, this is a disaster. It's going to ruin the economy. They just say it's expensive. It means some rich bankers get more money than they should, which doesn't make anyone happy, but it doesn't destroy our economy. So um, so the stakes, while the stakes obviously are very high overall, the stakes on, on this one don't seem that high, that there is wiggle room here. <laughs> they can get it sort of right and and move things forward. They can get it sort of wrong, but they don't move things terribly far backwards. But but what about the third view? You said there was a third view, right? Yeah, I'm calling it the Noam Scheiber view, um, although I hear this from a lot of people, and apologies to, to Scheiber if I'm getting um, some of his particular view wrong. This, I should say, is a view for which there is absolutely no data. This is pure guesswork, um, but it goes something like this, that the Obama administration's in a tough spot. Congress is sick of giving money to bail out banks. Congress is not in a mood to nationalize banks either. That's very unpopular politically, um, which leaves them with minimal uh, wiggle room. So this plan, maybe, maybe, we don't know, it's just a guess, creates a condition where if it works, great. But if it fails, the Obama administration can say to Congress, hey, we tried our best. We really came up with a comprehensive plan. We're going to need some more money. We're going to need the power to nationalize the banks. And they get more wiggle room. I will say there's another possibility, which is this plan does not work as advertised, and Congress loses even more faith in Geithner and the Obama administration, and we do not get a solution anytime soon. That that would be the nightmare scenario. So let, let's, I guess, hope that one doesn't happen. All right. Thanks. Thanks for ending on an up note there. Hey, I like to depress the <laughs> listeners. Next time we'll get Catalano last, although he can be pretty cynical sometimes. All right. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, David. All right, David. Now it's time to take our global anger tour 2009. Are you ready? I am ready. Yeah. We are going to find out how people outside the U.S. are feeling about the global economic crisis. And our first stop is China. NPR's Louisa Lim sent us this from Shanghai. Alarm and disbelief. Those are the two words that keep popping up when people here in China talk about their reaction to the financial crisis. One international relations professor summed up the mood in academic circles. You'd think people might be more angry that the U.S. has got us into this mess, he said. 
but it's more like sheer disbelief that a superpower would allow itself to implode in this way. But public anger is growing, and particularly over the fate of the Chinese government's huge holdings in U.S. Treasury debt. Some see the financial crisis as a case of U.S. hubris. Recently, at a high-powered think tank seminar on the Chinese economy, I sat next to a young, well-educated businessman working in finance. At one point, he said to me, with no small satisfaction, "Up until recently, American banks didn't trust Chinese banks at all. Now the situation is absolutely the opposite, and Chinese banks don't trust American banks." To find out more about who or what people are blaming, I went to talk to Jiang Jun, a professor of economics at Shanghai's prestigious Fudan University. I think there is the only thing that we should blame that is the post-Washington consensus. You know, you know, this is a joke, but I think you know, post-Washington consensus. I per, you know, if, uh, just explain to our listeners what what the post-Washington oh, consensus. Post-Washington is. consensus is is the idea. Uh, shared by most of the economists in Washington D.C. when they when they made the policy suggestion to developing uh, and 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 emerging market economies uh, by saying that uh, well you know we need a liberalization of the trade you know we should lower the barriers to to entry you know we should we should do a lot a lot of liberalization in the economy including financial liberalization so for, I think the last ten year that idea. You know, pervades. You know, for in developing economies. So in the last ten years, we 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 created so many surplus economies, and the economy with a huge amount of the surplus. You know,、uh, and, and then the surplus, you know, measured by the dollars would be recycled to deficit countries like the U.S. You know, I think that, that created the, you know, a, a a low pause actually for the financial system. You know, so I think this is the fundamental reason of why we're going to. We're going to have the financial crisis today. But if you follow this line of thinking, then the biggest culprit responsible for the financial crisis is China, because China has the biggest,、uh, the biggest savings, like the biggest foreign reserves. Well, actually, if you if you look at the what happened to most of the、uh, emerging markets economies, I think that China is only one of them. You know, we do have、uh, a lot more countries, including. Some of the oil-selling countries, you know, accumulate a huge amount of the dollars as a foreign exchange reserve. So actually, this is the global saving glut. You know, this is not purely the case of China, where you could see there's a lot more countries in the last ten years who、uh, turned out to be a surplus country. You know, simply because they benefited a lot from the trade with the U.S. and with the European countries. I've been reading that the, these. A new book is coming out called "China Is Unhappy," where a lot of nationalists are arguing that China has somehow been brought down by the U.S. as part of a conspiracy. I mean, do you think that the financial crisis might actually help Chinese nationalists' cause? I don't think so, actually. You know, I, I, well, I, I don't believe so. You know, I think the global economy is being. You know, moving very fast. You know, to bring more emerging market within the, you know, global community. You know, and every the emerging market is being benefiting a lot from from you know this kind of integration. But the question here is, the financial system cannot work very well. You know, with the globalization process. You know, we need to find a way. We need actually change the rule of the game. You know, to bring every country in the same equal. 
you know, I'm the equal starting point. You know, we, we need the emerging markets to play a more important role in the maintenance of the global, you know, stability. Zhang Jun was teaching an MBA class when I went to speak to him, so I also spent some time with his students, a sample of bright, articulate Chinese who pretty much represent what the business elite here is saying. So here are the thoughts of Jimmy Liu and Kevin Lau on who or what to blame. Okay, I guess that、uh, most people would like to say that probably it's the United States who created this financial crisis, but I think that. Um, if we look at as a whole, I think that the global、um, capital market, the global economic regulation, and all these financial directive products, they should be blamed for this financial crisis. Not only a government or a country. Yeah, this is my point of view. Yeah, I was quite agreeing with Jimmy because I think such a big crisis, but can't blame just one man. It blames people's greedy. Maybe that's the most important thing. So every people want more money. Also, I would just add one thing that once upon a time, I heard an economics. He said that it is the original thing of the capital because people will also try to make much more money as much as they can. So I think that the capital itself maybe is the original cause of this financial crisis. I mean, you're basically just saying it's human nature. Yeah, that's right. Human nature, greedy. That's the original cost. Greed. They are so、uh, reasonable and nuanced. I mean, in there you hear we blame the United States, <laughs> we blame regulation, we blame macroeconomic factors, we blame capitalism, human nature. It just doesn't make a very、uh, simple movie narrative. Yeah, we want. Where's the bad、pointing. guy? You know, dressed in black with the mask and all that. Right. All right.、Uh, what's the next stop on our、uh, tour of blame? Sweden. Why Sweden? Because I love Swedish fish. <laughs> no,、um, because they've seen record drops in exports. They slashed their key interest rate to one percent. Unemployment is at eight percent, and because a reporter from Swedish public radio stopped by our New York office, and she's a really big fan of Planet Money. <laughs> and someone grabbed her for an interview. Yeah, our producer Caitlin Kenny. She sat down with Linnea Eriksson from Sweden Public Radio. Caitlin, come tell us about it. Hey guys, I got out of the broom closet. Yeah, I'll put、girl. you back in there. You only have a few minutes. Yeah. So Linnea came by on Friday. She said she's a big fan of the show, and I asked her a little bit about what she's seeing in the economy. She lives. A, she lives in a region in Sweden, up in the north, that relies really heavily on industry. And so she's saying, in a lot of the towns that she covers, there's one or two companies that pretty much most of the people work for. So when one of these companies goes down, there's just a mass of layoffs. And it's not just the people from that company who get laid off and suffer. It's that then the other businesses in town, the shops, the restaurants, collapse as well because no one in the town has money to spend on these other services. Um, and she told me that when she, you know, first started working for Sweden Public Radio, they used to cover layoffs of maybe like 50 people. If that happened, it was a huge deal. They'd go out, they'd broadcast live, but now they just can't cover it because pretty much every day they're seeing layoffs of 500 people or more. So it's just totally changed. Wow. So, so what's the answer to our big global anger tour 2009 question? Who, who do they blame for that? Well, there's kind of a few answers here.、Uh, one source of frustration that they've been dealing with lately is the country's unions. Sweden is a very unionized country. People really、uh, believe in their unions and depend on them strongly. But 
Linnea told me that something happened recently that kind of changed that. Two or three weeks ago, one of the major unions, uh, which is the uh, like metal workers union, mm-hmm. actually negotiated down their own members' salaries. And maybe that doesn't sound shocking to you, but that was a That's huge... That's a big deal. Yeah, it's and a why did, huge why did that deal. happen? Because they are so worried about the future for their industry. And they're saying, unless we cut our own salaries we might see even more layoffs. So for a union right. to negotiate down their own pay, like that doesn't, you don't, that's not what the union does. Like that's not what they do. Right. But now they did. And so they they received some criticism for it, but they say, hey, you know what? We're trying to save, you know, thousands of you guys from getting laid off. So if you have to like survive on 75% of your salary, well, then be it. So there you have an example of people really trying to band together to figure out how to get through this crisis. They're all like, let's all take the cut so that we don't have to lay off one person or another. But then on the other side, there's also cases of people who've just completely turned against each other. One of the the, the big city, the 100,000, Javle, was going to fire 40 teachers, which, you know, it's not a huge, 40 or 50, something and like you're that. You're talking about 500. Yeah, it's, 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 it was a big deal because it was firing teachers, which, I mean, education is usually the right. sphere where people are pretty, pretty safe. But what happened was that the young teachers went out and actually said, fire the old ones. Like, we need this. We need the time to get into our work. We're going to be the future. So fire the old people that have worked wow. here longer. Yeah. And so, of course, the union and, like, the older workers were like, what are you, I mean, <laughs> what are you saying? But th- that, that you know, people are turning against each other like that. I, I So thought, what ended up happening there? Did Well, they're still um, negotiating, so we don't actually know who's going to end up getting fired. But that, to me personally, was just like, oh, wow, what would it be like to be in an organization where you maybe you've worked there for 30 years, you get a new colleague, and the new colleague together with, you know, his friends or, you know, people his age go out publicly and say, fire the old people. <laughs> like, yeah. what do you, how do you go back to, to having a good working relationship with people after right. that. So teachers against teachers. Are, are, are people blaming the government as well? Well, actually, she said they're actually pretty happy overall with the government. Um, they've had, you know, similar to what we've seen here, some bonus and insider trading scandals of their own. But for the most part, there seems to be a strong sense of governance support. Uh, there was recently kind of a little bit of political hot potato about what to do about Saab. Uh, the parties in opposition wanted Saab and also Volvo nationalized because they support a huge uh, number of towns. ton of people work for these companies, and they're basically like, you know, with Detroit, we have to save them. We have to do something. But the government decided actually not to step in and not to nationalize them. So they lost. They definitely lost some votes in some of those towns where these people live. But overall, the country's response to it was pretty positive. People were happy that they kind of just decided to let the industries figure it out on their own. Caitlin, and, and they don't blame the United States? They don't blame us at all? Not really. I mean, th- that was one of the things I asked her, you know, are people really upset? Are they like rioting? She's like, you know, that's not really in our nature. They are kind of, you know, upset at the U.S., but they're more concerned about the policies and the regulation. Sweden is used to having a big government, and they think maybe the U.S. government just got a little too small in this case. Um, another thing that I asked Linnea about was how much they're following the news here. How are they looking at things and, and what are they thinking about? 
And she said they're definitely looking at the big picture, but they're having some trouble understanding how the crisis happened because their ideas about credit are so different than ours. Here in America, you encourage people to do get into credit. I actually had a fascinating conversations with my with my parents-in-law when they visited me in Sweden, and they said, "Aren't you going to pay with the, for this with your credit card?" And I said, "No, I don't have a credit card." And they just looked at me and said, you have to get a credit card. And I said, why? And they, well, you know, you want to buy a house, right? They said, and you want to have a car. You need to build, so you need to build credit. credit. And I told them, I said, you know, it doesn't work like that here. I said, we don't have credit scores. We don't have, it doesn't so matter. Do I, if you, when you go to the bank to get a loan for a house, how do they decide how credit worthy you are? They look at your income. What are you making? Uh, what does your husband or your wife or your partner what do they make? What big other loans do you have? And then they decide whether or not you're credit worthy. Sounds like kind of a novel approach, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a weird way of doing things. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, guys. All right. And for our last stop on our global anger tour, we decided to choose a country at random, someplace maybe we don't hear about all the time, but still living in this global crisis with the rest of us. And Hannah, you spun a globe and the lucky country was Egypt. Yep, lucky Egypt. And uh, the first voice that I want to play you here was chosen very much in the same spirit. And by that, I mean randomly. I mean, you got like a phone book, or Egyptian phone book or something? <laughs> no, I didn't have one of those around, David. But I was getting up really early in the morning and I was dialing all these Egyptian economists and experts and I'm finding out lots of interesting things like traffic through the Suez Canal is way down. Revenues from that fell by a quarter last month. So that's a really big deal for Egypt. Um, and tourism is down. So I'm talking to all these people and I'm trying to get through to this professor and I dial the wrong number and this guy answers. He speaks English, immediately starts talking to me and telling me all about himself and asking me about myself and tell him what I'm working on. And he says, OK, interview me. <laughs> but who is he? His name is Ahmad Diab, and he's in Horgada. It's a big tourist destination on the Red Sea. And he works at a windsurfing club and hotel. I'm the bartender in this club because we have uh, sometimes beach party and barbecue and some stuff like this. So for our guests. Are they... Are they mostly people from abroad that come to your bar? Yeah, of course, but we don't go to uh, American tourists. Where are people most from? Of, most of our guests is uh, German, Austria, Italian, English. And and when people come into your bar, do they talk about the economy? Sometimes, yes. Everybody cry now from this everywhere. When they go to drink something, when they want to buy something, when they go to holidays, they cry from this. A lot of people now, they fired from work and, yeah, but this was okay for me because I started my flat and was everything very expensive to finish my flat. And now uh, the prices in Egypt are getting very cheap and for me, easy to finish my flat. Have you noticed any change in how many people come through? Yes, of course. This effect on our, for example, something like uh, the owner of my hotel. Before, for example, he gets every month like uh, 10,000 tourism, but now he gets like uh, six, 7,000. So he angry. So what he, sh what he will do? He is angry and he tries to make the prices a little bit cheaper. Right. When when people are angry at, about yes. the bad economy, who do they think started it? Who are they angry at? 
they think that's I don't know what I will I will say for you. What I, I think starts from United States from you, and you know that America is the most strong economic in the world. Mm-hmm. What we will do? We can do nothing. We cannot, couldn't help to to make it better. But you know our our economic it's not uh, so strong like uh, United States or this uh, big big economic big country. So we don't feel it so much like you. Hi, you know he he sounded like he felt a little bad telling you he blamed your country. <laughs> he did. He actually he apologized quite a bit for blaming us. But the thing is that he didn't. I mean, it wasn't completely that you know we blame the United States and it's all your fault. He he's the sort of ambivalence about it. I could, I, I seriously I could hear him shrugging through the phone when I would ask him. You know, who are people angry at? He just sort of had the sense of we're a small country in this big game. They're huge players like the U.S. and you know, what can we do? Yeah, that's sort of almost sadder. It's just like we don't have control over anything, you know? Right, right. Well, I thought it was interesting. I wanted to understand that feeling better. So I called another expert. Um, I called a psychologist named Hani, Dr. Hani Henry. He also teaches at the American University in Cairo. And I asked him to put our bartender friend to, and to put his country, Egypt, on his psychologist's couch. Tell us, you know, how are people feeling about this big, bad economy? There is a wide range of responses. So definitely there is anxiety, but, but uh, in the part of, I mean, let me just be frank to you. In Egypt, I mean, there's a huge gap between the haves and the have-not. I mean, uh, if you're talking about someone who has, established career or has established business, yes, definitely, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of uh, fear. Um, but on the other hand, you get people who are also despondent, who really don't care. They feel they've already had economic crisis for years. They feel like they didn't get any part of the pie, which by the pie I mean like the open market economy. Uh, and so and so they really, they even make fun of it, like, yeah, it will impact us, but you know, in in a funny way, they don't really mean that it will impact them. They've been just sarcastic or ironic. But there are many, many uh, state-owned factories that have been sold to private investors, and now these private investors are uh, threatening to uh, lay off a lot of workers. And now there's a lot of uh, demonstrations about that, especially in the area of texture, where the government used to control the industry. So I, I don't necessarily see anger like you're saying in the U.S. I'm seeing more like frustration, confusion, anxiety. Uh, I'm also seeing some sense of, you know, attack against capitalism and the kind of like let's go get back to religion kind of attitude, uh, you know, because uh, let's get back to um, the, the time where Egypt was socialist. Okay, so right after this, Dr. Henry starts telling me this story by way of example. I thought it was really interesting. So there's this guy, Nabil Albushi, and he worked at a brokerage firm, and he would bring in all these powerful people in Egypt, officials and celebrities, and um, he'd bring them on as clients, and he'd promise them, okay, you invest your money with me, you'll get huge returns, 40%, 50%. Tell your friends. And then in January, he's arrested in Dubai. And all these allegations come out that his operation was a fraud and that actually he was bringing on new people and he'd pay his old people their awesome returns from the new people's money. He's the Egyptian Bernie Madoff. (laughs) Right. That's what he is being called. Dr. Henry used that name for him, too. Um, 
And with Albushi, there's actually a lot of confusion about what happened and how he pulled off the scheme and what it was and how much money was lost. But yeah, clearly there's a similar to similar situation in a lot of ways. Um, and so I asked Dr. Henry and Egyptian Madoff, are people egging his home and demanding to see him suffer? Uh, in a way, actually, I have to be honest with you. If you look at the sentiment of most people, because most people are the have-nots, right? Um, they actually felt very upset, not at him, but those who invested with him. So people were angry not at the Madoff-like guy, but at the people yeah. who invested with him. Because, again, like I said, there's no... Uh, I mean, the only very few have a lot of money, and we, we don't care, I mean, if there's unequal distribution of wealth, but at the same time, people feel at some point that it's that the gap is just so huge. So, for example, uh, you get this commentator who said, you know what, I'm not worried about these people, I'm, but I'm upset with them, I'm angry with them. Instead of investing in a factory that can employ hundreds of employees and feed a lot of families, they're going to this uh, to this investor so that they make like 30% or 40% interest rate, and this is their greed. Uh, they're, they're accusing people of being greedy, of being irresponsible to their fellow human beings, to their fellow Egyptians. I think that's if you're talking about anger, that's really the anger of the public. Well, what do you make of that? As a, I mean, it sounds like you followed Madoff a little bit. What do you make of the difference there? Oh, I think that I'll tell you what's the difference. I'll, you know, in Egypt, uh, people feel that because we don't have antitrust laws and because there is a lot of corruption, any, I mean, whether this is true or not, people still have that strong conviction that whoever makes a lot of money, um, I don't want to say the word you're a thief, but they, it's questionable how you made your money. Many people do not trust the system. Uh, they don't feel there is a system. Whereas in America, I think things are a little bit different because the, uh, there are some rules, there are some laws. For example, you know, um, the Congress acted very swiftly when there was this AIG bonuses thing. and uh, You know what I mean? There's like more like a public outcry. But people here feel like we're still at the infancy level of capitalism. There are the rules... They're not, there are still rules to be enacted. And once you have these rules in place, then people can trust the system. Hannah, it's sort of like, you know, they don't trust the system there. And again, that's a, sort of the same thing going on here. People right now, I think, don't trust the system we have set up really, really works the way they thought it did. Right, right. And we are looking to rewrite the rules of our regulatory system here. But it's interesting that difference. I mean, can you imagine... A Madoff story breaks, and immediately columnists writing greedy Madoff investors get what was coming to them. No, I can't see that. That would help the newspapers go out of business, actually. <laughs> right. um, well, there you have it, folks. A lot of different countries, a lot of different emotions. I think that does it for us here today. Check out our blog, npr.org slash money, to see pictures of some of the places we talked about in today's trip around the globe. You can also share the view from your home, wherever you happen to be living, by emailing us at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. Thank you.